gathering. I want to welcome everyone this morning to the Village Church, where our mission is to know Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, and to glorify Jesus in all things. And our vision is broken people coming together to embrace and extend Jesus' love. If you're a guest today, again, we want to welcome you. Uh, There are guest information cards located just outside the sanctuary doors in the narthex. So please, if you're one of our guests, fill one out and drop it in the basket next, uh, next to where the cards are. And we look forward to connecting with you. So as many of you know, our pastor, uh, Reverend Alex Shipman, continues his sabbatical. So today uh, we welcome Reverend Adam Tisdale uh, to the pulpit this morning. Uh, Adam is the pastor of North Hills Church. And uh, y'all make him feel welcome this morning. I want to remind our parents that the nursery is open today. Uh, we have resumed our uh, our nursery service, uh, and so uh, we need volunteers also for the month of October. So uh, please speak with Tiffany Williams or email her at tiffany at enterthevillage.net. At the Village Church, we believe that the giving of tithes and offerings is an act of worship. So you may give to the vision and the mission of the Village Church by using the link on our webpage, which is www.enterthevillage.net forward slash give. You can mail a check to our physical address, which is 2103 Virginia Boulevard, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, 35811. Or after the service, if you're here, you can drop off your offering in the designated area in the back of the sanctuary. Now, we urgently need additional people who are willing to um, uh, to serve our church by operating our audio and visual equipment. No experience is needed. Training will be provided. And the commitment is one Sunday, one Sunday per month. So please contact Grace or Patience for more information. Our session meeting will be meeting tomorrow, uh, September 27th. On September 29th, uh, the fifth Wednesday, this Wednesday, uh, there will be no corporate prayer because it's outside of our our regular rhythm since it is a uh, a fifth Sunday. So those are your announcements. Please govern yourselves accordingly. Let's prepare our hearts and minds for worship.
Hallelujah. Won't you come? Won't you come adore him this morning? Please stand with me, if you are able, for our call to worship. It is taken from the song, In the Beauty of Holiness. Please join with me where it notes congregation. Come, let us worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Come, let us worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Give him the honor. Give him the praise. Come, let us worship the Lord. Let's give him the praise. Worship him. Worship him. Give my God the glory. Give my God the praise. Worship him. Worship him. Come, let us worship the Lord. Let's give him the praise. Won't you worship him with me this morning? For he alone is worthy.
God is fighting for us. And we can shout in Jesus' name. He is powerful in the name of Jesus. There's that song that says, In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. In the name of Jesus, yeah, in the name of Jesus, Satan, you have to flee. says, do you really believe it tomorrow morning? For our scripture reading today, we're looking at Matthew, continuing in Matthew, uh, chapter 26, I'll be reading verses 1 through 25. Hear God's word. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man we delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? 
and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to the, that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. The sins reading God's word. And I think, uh, we hear, reading that somber account in Scripture, uh, it causes us to ask what the uh, Heidelberg Catechism asks us, what is true faith? Okay, what is true faith then? I'll read the question and read the answer as it's on screen, I think. Okay. What is true faith? True faith is not only trusting God, whereby I hold the truth, all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also a hard heart trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the Gospel. And I only for others, me also, forgiveness of sin. merits. Amen. Continue in our worship, praising God.
Lord, I pray that you continue to bless Alex. I pass as he's away on his sabbatical. May he have maybe have much joy as he's away. And Lord, that Lord, I pray that you would visit him daily. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. Just forgot that I have the privilege of reading the scripture today. I'll be coming from Matthew 26, verses 1 through 40. I'm sorry. Uh, 25 through 46. Judas, who would be, who betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, <clears throat> broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, to, <clears throat> given thanks he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it all, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which, I, which, is, which is poured out for, for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, <clears throat> raised up, I will, give, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, though, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And said, and he said to him, Disciples, sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons, Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and, and troubled. Then, then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and, and prayed, saying, "Father, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not at all, not, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. <clears throat> and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer at hand. At the, at hand. Thank you.
It is a privilege to be here uh, with you again. I'm appreciative to the elders for the invitation, and I bring you greetings from the saints of North Hills up in Meridianville, where I've been the pastor for the past 12 years. And over that time, Alex and I have developed a tremendous relationship and friendship. In fact, he and I were together yesterday with our sons up in Nashville taking in the Georgia Bulldogs beating down the mighty Vanderbilt Commodores. And so it was a privilege to, to spend some time with them. I get to see him about once a week, and I'm thankful for that. I, I want to commend the church and the elders for giving the sabbatical to Alex. In 2018, on the, on the brink of burnout myself and tremendous church conflict and personal difficulty, I had a six-week sabbatical, and that was uh, a great blessing. And so what you've given to Alex... I know is a tremendous blessing to him, and I'm, I'm thankful for it on his behalf. And so I commend you, I commend the elders, and I commend the congregation. And I hope that when Alex returns, uh, he returns healthy in body and soul, so that the Village Church can continue to be a place where broken people come together to embrace and extend Christ's love. My passage that I've been given is Matthew 26. It's really 1 through 46, but, you know, pastor gets the choice. I'm going, at least in this situation, I'm going to focus on verses 36 through 46, but we'll draw a little bit on some of the earlier passages, which thankfully we've had read. And we're going to go to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. We thank you that you've not left us alone to try to figure out what faith looks like or what our journey is. But, Father, you walk with us day and night when we're sleeping and when we're awake. Father, you are with us. And we thank you for this particular time when we pray that by your word and your spirit you would come and encourage us and lead us in your way. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It starts about a month ahead of time. I start to look at the calendar, and of course I I make my notes in my journal and my calendar that I keep, and I always know the month of when this appointment is coming. I will begin to feel it. And then it will become more intense when I get up to the week of which I will have a scan that will determine whether I remain cancer-free or not. And the fact that I've already had a scan that said it's back adds a level of anxiety and weight and anticipation. Uh, There's a phrase that some of us in the cancer community know, and maybe others too, it, it, it could serve in many places, scanxiety, scan and anxiety. And in fact, a month from now, October 26, I will have my biannual scan. And in the past, thankfully, I've remained cancer-free. I hope that continues. But there's a weight that comes in the lead-up to those experiences, and I have to ask my brothers And sisters, to lift me up, to pray with me. And and that includes Alex and other pastor friends that I come to rely on. And I ask, will you pray for me so that I'll have peace? 
so that I'll be able to go forward in God's will. And I know that ultimately my hope in, is in the Lord and not in the results of a test. I know ultimately that not a hair can fall from my head without the Lord knowing and ordaining it. I rest in Christ my Savior. All of that is true. And yet still I feel this anticipation that weighs heavy on my soul. You see, our anxiety often grows because we don't know what is going to happen. Here in this chapter, and we're looking at the first 46 verses, in particular verses 36 through 46, Jesus does know. Jesus' anticipation is different. He knows perfectly all that is going to take place. All that he is going to endure. All that he is going to suffer. On our behalf. He walks up to the ledge of the Grand Canyon of our sin. In which he will be cast into. To bear on our behalf. And he knows that. And he feels that in the Garden of Gethsemane. That Jesus can look full in the face of what lays before him and still submit To the will of the Father is an encouragement to us, especially when we wrestle with our own anxieties. The beauty of Christ is that he shines in the darkness of sin and the night of our struggle. It shines even when I am unsure. My theme this morning, I always have when I'm in the congregation, I have a theme statement, kind of big picture. So my theme this morning is that Jesus is endures the agony of the garden to bring us the victory of his cross. He endures the agony of the garden to bring us the victory of the cross. And so I want to talk about three things. The garden, the cup, and the agony. First, the garden. What leads to the garden? And one of the most important prayers ever prayed... Well, Jesus has been teaching extensively. If you have a you know, paper copy of your Bible, if it's a red letter edition, you go back several chapters and you see it's just chock full of red letters. Jesus has been teaching. He's been teaching his people. He's been teaching Pharisees. He's been teaching in the temple day and night as he's entered into Jerusalem for this last time. And he's made some enemies. He certainly hasn't read or taken up how to make friends and influence people. He certainly is influencing people for sure. Uh, Look what he says in verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man, that's Jesus' own way of identifying himself, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. There's no uncertainty there. And then we shift scenes a little bit to Bethany, which is outside of Jerusalem. And there a woman anoints Jesus with an expensive flask of this ointment. And the disciples, maybe with a fake piety, object. I don't, maybe I'm being too hard on them, but it seems as if their objection is a little bit about, (laughs) you know, look at us. But Jesus says, hey, brothers, you don't understand. Here's what she's done. So verse 12, he says, in pouring this ointment on my body, She has done it to prepare me for burial. So if you're keeping track, Jesus has made reference to his crucifixion and now to his burial. 
He's anticipating it. The disciples should be picking up on this. But what else? What else does Jesus have to deal with that leads to the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, betrayal. Judas decided that Jesus' soul was worth about 30 pieces of silver. It's not nothing, but it's not what Jesus is worth. You know that. Judas knew that, and yet he betrays. And this comes in the context of the preparations of the Passover, which Jesus transforms into the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which point to those elements of, of juice or wine and bread, pointing to the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for us. Of course, you know, Peter has to have his screen time. And Peter says, hey, all these others are going to fall away, but not me. Not me. He's so bold in himself. He's more sure of himself than he is of his Savior. You ever been there? Not that we like to admit. So all of that leads to Gethsemane. This means oil press. And surely there were olive trees there which would have provided shade and rest. A place of respite. It's also just east of Jerusalem on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. This is Passion Week, as we refer to it. And Jesus has been teaching in the daytime, and in the evenings he goes with his disciples to find rest. And this is where he goes. They go there to sleep, to rest, to get a break. And now think about that for a moment. Jesus has been coming here on a nightly basis, and he knows that Judas knows this. We read in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So think about that. Judas knows where Jesus is going to be. Jesus knows that Judas knows. So what would be the right course of action that we would take? If we were making a movie, right, what would you do? You'd run to Galilee for a, a, a holiday by the sea. Or you'd, you'd park yourself in the Jerusalem Super 8 and lay low. That would make sense if you were trying to avoid death, but Jesus isn't. He's going straight to the cross. But that does not mean that it's easy. Jesus is enduring this for us. He goes where he knows that the final chapter of his passion will begin. And he begins to pray there. It wasn't just Jesus' custom to come to this location, but also to pray. The garden is a place of prayer. Now, when you think of gardens... What's your, what kind of mental images come about? You think of a botanical gardens? That would be nice. You think of uh, the garden in your home that you're desperately trying to keep the weeds out, but maybe you've prevailed for now. Maybe a place of rest for you. And we come to this garden, and generally we think of a good concept when we think of garden, but what of this garden? What of the Garden of Gethsemane? It's a place of prayer, yes, but it's also a place of endurance for Jesus, which is for us. You also hear the word garden, you might think of the Garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve lived there, and they had everything they needed. They had a relationship with the Creator. They were not betrayed. They were not hunted. No, they had everything they need, and they fell. But here, Jesus is in a different garden, and the question is, will he fall? What will happen with the second Adam in the garden? And this brings us to the cup. Jesus has asked the disciples to pray with them, with him. He commands them. He knows that they will be tempted to depart from Jesus in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his arrest, in the midst of his crucifixion, all of that. So verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then a little bit later we hear in verse 40 and 41, he's speaking specifically to Peter now because he's found them sleeping. And he says to Peter, so could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't this the pattern of prayer that Jesus has taught his disciples? When we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's exactly what Jesus is encouraging the disciples to pray right now. The temptations have already been heavy and they've already succumbed to pride and regarding themselves. In the Gospel of Luke, we're actually told the disciples had one of those arguments that they've had a couple times about who is the greatest. Hours before Jesus is going to be crucified, they're having that argument. So indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he knows that they will face their own trials of doubt and despair, persecution and pressure to deny Jesus. Prayer is one of the best tools you've been given to fight temptation. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples right now. It's what he's saying to us. Prayer is a means of our communion with the Lord. And Jesus models this for us. Now, the normal posture of prayer at this time was to stand with one's hands out. But Jesus' posture is not that. We read that he falls on his face in verse 39 as he prays. Have you ever been driven to your knees by some circumstance? Crumpled onto the floor in a heap? Some things are that heavy. And it would be good to know that your friends were praying for you in that moment. And here Jesus is, and he prays this most profound prayer where we learn much about prayer. In fact, he prays it three times. We hear it in verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, it's a little bit different, but it's the same idea. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then verse 44, we're told that he prayed this prayer a third time. 
And there are three parts to this prayer that I want to pull out in three lessons. First, notice that Jesus starts with Father. My Father. Jesus shows us that prayer is grounded in a relationship. And it is the kind of communion that is otherworldly. And this is a good lens for us to see prayer through. A good reminder to us that have been adopted and brought into the family by grace. That we have this privilege to pray Our Father. Don't forget that. To start here is to start from a place of implicit trust. It is not distant or tenuous, but indicative of Jesus' confidence in whom he prays. The Father is loving and trustworthy. Even, hear me, even when we reach a difficult place, as God has in Jesus right now. You see that Jesus is bold and honest in his prayer. And so he says, let this cup pass from me. Now, Jesus' request here is no small matter. Basically, he's asking, God, Father, is there another way? Because now would be the time to tell me. Now would be a good time to let me know. Like when... Abraham had the knife above his son Isaac and said, wait, I have the sacrifice. Well, Jesus is that sacrifice. He is that eternal and final sacrifice. And right now he's asking, is there another way? And it is not a sin to ask God if there's another way. It's a sin to think you know better than God. But not a sin to ask him, is there another way? We all too often reject God because we don't understand Him. We don't understand what He's doing. We don't understand His will or His way. So what is Jesus asking when He asks this? He's asking for there to be a different path to our salvation. A way out of the cross and his suffering. The Old Testament metaphor he uses when he speaks of the cross is to speak of God's wrath. Leon Morris says the cup has associations of suffering and the wrath of God. And then he gives several quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus knows that continued suffering is ahead and that he will bear the wrath that we deserve. That suffering will include the cross, of course, but what came with it? Bearing the entire weight of the sin of his people in his body, the shame of the cross, being forsaken by God as he took our place. If we can even begin to understand what that means, we will understand why Jesus says, can this cup pass? Is there another way? But he also says, not my will, but your will be done. Haven't we been taught to pray that too? And it is never a cop out to pray that. It's never a lack of faith in our prayers to ask for God's will to be done. Yes, we should pray with boldness and honesty. But we should also pray in submission because submission is obedience to God's will. And Jesus shows us that this submission in action is one of the most difficult points in his life. He must endure at this point. 
while not named here, Satan is lurking. Through Judas and his demand to sift the disciples, there's a spiritual war. But Jesus is in complete submission to his Father. And all too often, we as his disciples are found asleep. Verse 42 emphasizes this yielding to the will of the Father when he prays that second time. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This is not resignation, but humble submission. Jesus did that all of his life, but we see it in an intensity in this very moment. You think, hey, no big deal, right? Have you tried not sinning for one day? Jesus did it all of his life. And he did it here. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So yeah, this is a big deal. You know, endurance is hard, isn't it? Maybe that's why I'm not a runner. But I've found my race if I ever make it out to Bourne, Texas. There's the Bourne .5K. It's a race just stretching 500 In 46 yards, they advertise, join your fellow underachievers for a day. Actually, more like 10 minutes of glory, celebration, and participation trophies. And if you need a rest, there's a halfway point where you can fill up on coffee or step over and take a smoke break, get a donut. If you participate in this race, you get one of those t-shirts and what the website called a pretentious oval Euro style .5 sticker. They have since added a decathlon, but have dropped most of the events, but you can still pick up a javelin. Because who wouldn't want to throw a javelin? You know, this race is more the disciples' speed, too. You know, while Jesus is running a spiritual Ironman, followed by the Boston Marathon and then the Iditarod, all wrapped up in this one moment, and that probably doesn't even capture it, We need Jesus' endurance. We need it. And we got it. And all of this leads to the agony. Jesus endures the agony of the garden to bring us the victory of his cross. And this part of Matthew 26 and in the Gospels where we go to the garden, it's been called the agony of the garden throughout church history. Probably based on Luke twenty two forty four, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He's in anguish. Here, Matthew focuses on, on sorrow. And when you hear that word, you might think, well, he, you know, he's just a little sad. Well, it's a little bit deeper. It's a little bit more than that, more profound. He says that, and we read this in verse 37, and then it's reemphasized in Jesus' words. He began to be sorrowful and troubled in verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That's how deep and painful this agony is. He's in deep distress, so much so that he begins to sweat Blood, which is a foretaste of the blood that will be shed on the cross. And we know the answer to Jesus' request for the cup to pass. 
There is no other way. There is no other path. This is what God has ordained. The wages of sin is death. But praise be to God that Jesus has paid that penalty. So there's nothing dispassionate here. Jesus is not a a stoic. He's not saying, you know, it is what it is. I say that a lot, mostly to my shame, because it reveals something about the way I trust the Father. There's nothing dispassionate in Jesus' words and His actions here and the agony that He faces. Here we see the humanity of Jesus quite clearly, even while we have also seen His divinity through His ability and willingness to take His sins on our behalf. So none of this, none of this is easy. We look at suffering oftentimes as incompatible with the will of God. You know, how could God allow me to suffer? Uh, Doesn't he know I'm one of his beloved? Indeed, I am. And yet. Our suffering is not incompatible with the will of God, because it is often the will of God to lead us through suffering to help us become more like him. And more dependent upon him. And we see in Jesus His dependence upon the Father in this moment, even as He is there to suffer on our behalf. Do I like that that's the way God works? Not really. But then I see Jesus. And I realize that's what I need. And is there something lacking in Jesus here that He can't face this moment with a, a stern face? I mean, others have faced death with a grim stoicism or... Even a great courage in the face of injustice. English bishops Latimer and Ridley, this is in the 1500s when Mary became Queen of England. She worked to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. And one of her first acts was to arrest Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer. As well as Archbishop Thomas Cramner. And they were taken in September of 1555 to be examined. And they were found lacking. And so they were sentenced to death by burning at a stake, which happened in October of 1555. And as he was tied to the stake, Ridley prayed, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. That's not a bad way to approach that moment. We see faith. And trust. Uh, Ridley cries out into thy hands, O Lord, I commend thy sir, my spirit. Unfortunately, the wood was green and burned only the lower parts of his body. He repeatedly called out, Lord, have mercy on me. And also, Latimer encouraged Ridley, and he said, Be of good com- comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And so we ask the question, surely Jesus could have the same courage, right? Then why this agony? Well, here Tim Keller is helpful. He says in his book, The King's Cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath. 
the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. God is the source of all love, all life, all light, all coherence. Therefore, exclusion from God is exclusion from the source of all light, all love, all coherence. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from the Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. But not so much that he turned back from his path. Instead, he turned even more to his Father. The deeper the suffering, the greater the prayer of Jesus. And as he did under the agony of this impending reality, deep in prayer, that blood and sweat joined together, as we see what will be required for Jesus to satisfy the penalty that we deserve. This is why the agony and the garden and the cup and the agony help me to see not just the depth of my sin, but also the endurance of Jesus to go all the way in completing the will of the Father and demonstrating His love for me. We begin to make sense of Hebrews 5, 7 and 8 through this lens. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. At the time of his greatest suffering, as it comes, the hour is at hand, he says in verse 45. The disciples have been sleeping. Not one time. They might like Luke's version of this story because Luke only talks about them falling asleep one time. But no, they fell asleep not one time, not two times, three times. So Jesus comes and says, hey, sleep some other time. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And indeed, you'll see that, I assume, next week. You know, we have a saying. I'll conclude with this. The anticipation is killing me. Or we may say the suspense is killing me. We generally mean that we can't wait for something good to happen. We have to endure until that good comes. It's just a saying, of course. We don't mean that literally, a way of capturing the intensity of emotions in that moment. Well, it's not the anticipation that is killing Jesus. He's not simply waiting for something to happen to him, but he has given himself wholly and completely to the will of the Father. Jesus endures the agony of the garden to bring us the victory of his cross. And it is our sin that kills him, not the anticipation. You and me, and he does it for us. And to get to the cross, you've got to go through the garden. And he submits to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. Praise be to God. I leave you with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know who that joy is referring to? You. The joy of the work that Jesus does in bringing many into the kingdom of God. Praise be to God. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be with these brothers and sisters, the Village Church. Lord, help us to look to Jesus, to lay aside the sin that clings so closely, and to run the race that you've set before us, knowing that Jesus has already accomplished all that we need. Father, we praise you and we thank you. Would you be with the Village Church? Continue to bless them and keep them. And help us all look to you and the work that you've done through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand with me.
offer the benediction, which is a blessing to you at North Hills. We put our hands out. You may do so, but be under no obligation. God's blessing upon you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And God's people say, Amen.